Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your people. We thank you for the opportunities that you give us to minister to one another, to serve, to fellowship, to pray, to worship. And now as we turn our attention to the scriptures, having engaged as a community, may we listen with ears that only you can give us. May our hearts and our minds be conformed to the image of Christ. May we see even in um, this um, obscure, uh, sometimes difficult to interpret book uh, of Esther, may we see your grace manifest. And we pray that Jesus, you, the living word, will be revealed to us in the written word. And we pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. So we are in the book of Esther. Um, if you're visiting with us um, and this is your first time, uh, Esther is, is uh, buried in the Old Testament. Um, there's a Bible in the rack in front of you. You can grab it. You can look through it. Look at the table of contents in the beginning and find uh, the book of Esther. Um, and uh, and Esther is uh, we we two weeks in Esther is a, a book um, built around some really difficult themes, um, and I, I mentioned this the first week that I did it. Um, uh, as I'm reading through Esther, and and one of the things that I do when I when I'm doing a book is that I, I read it in the original Hebrew or Greek and I translate it um, for myself and I, I make all kinds of notes and Esther is easily the hardest book I have ever had to read in Hebrew. It's just a very complicated book. Um, the language and the syntax is very elevated. It, it, it's sort of like trying to read um, a, you know, uh, trying to read a, a, a statistics textbook when you didn't get past basic math um, in in school, and and I say that from experience because um, I hate math. Um, so uh, I I took I took three years of algebra. Um, let me get that anyway. So. Um, we, we're going to be in this book, and, and it is a, a complicated book, and, and there's a lot of language, there's a lot of wordplay and things going on. I'm going to try not to, to bore you with that, but I, I want you to see kind of what's happening. And the first two chapters of uh, the first two chapters of the book of Esther, um, we, we found that the Hajuerus was the king of the Persian Empire in the fifth century BC, so about 2,500 years ago, in what is today Iran. Um, he, he threw a feast, his, his queen didn't want to come to the feast, um, and so he, he gets rid of her, and he has this contest to find a new queen, and he finds this, um, this Jewish girl named Hadassah, who goes by uh, Esther, um, it, her, her, her name in Persia and everything, what's called an exonym, um, and she becomes queen. And we ended uh, last week um, in verse 18 where there was a, a feast thrown in her party. Now we've called this series Seven Feasts in Persia, uh, or Seven Banquets in Persia, because there are seven um, key feasts or banquets that, that turn the story. Um, we're in between a couple of those, but we're going to pick up in Esther chapter 2 and verse 19. Um, and... Uh, Again, if you weren't with us, uh, what had happened was the king, Ahasuerus or Xerxes, he had gathered young, beautiful virgins from all through his empire. He had chosen um, Esther as his queen. 
And so in verse 19, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, this seems to be maybe part of the marriage feast or something that all the, all the, the unlucky bachelorettes um, are going to be sent home or um, given door prizes or something. I'm not sure exactly what's going on. But, um, and nobody is. The commentators don't really know what, what this means. Even the word second is a difficult word to translate. Um, because it's not really the number, like the, the number second. But anyway, uh, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, Mordecai is Esther's uh, older cousin, all right? Um, they're first cousins. Her parents are dead. Mordecai has raised her. In verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. And in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, or conveyed the message in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the, chronic, the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, just a, a couple of quick things about what's going on here, just so you know. Um, the, uh, the, the, the gate that Mordecai is sitting in, um, it's called Darius's gate. We, we, we know it. We have, we have the remains of it. Uh, we haven't even have an inscription from Ahasuerus. His Persian names is um, Kahashras. Um, and they comes into Greek as Xerxes, um, which is the name you will hear in your history classes when you, you study uh, the Persian Empire, or rather, um, don't pay attention to the section on the Persian Empire. Um, but the, uh, the, because it's told badly, because people don't know how to teach Persian history. Anyway, um, so Xerxes, Xerxes, we have actually have an inscription that Xerxes put up. He says, these are the gates that, um, that were built by my father Darius. Um, they're pretty big. Um, these are not just doors. Um, there's about, it's about 130 feet by 92 feet. It's a large, um, terrace area. Um, and there was a lot of traffic going in and out of the king's house that went through these gates. And as it was going through these gates, there were a number of officials involved in the business here. And Mordecai is there. He's sitting in the gates. Now, um, he hears, he overhears a conspiracy to kill the king. And this becomes very important. The book of Esther is built on irony. Um, and so, so Mordecai, a Jew, hears about a plot to kill the king, and he reports it to Esther, and Esther reports it to the king. Um, and they investigate, and they find out that these guys are actually plotting this. And so the English translation is really nice. They were hanged on the gallows. Um, the Persians actually did not hang people with ropes like we do them. Um, they impaled people. Um, so that image is a little gross, but, um, but that's what they would do. That was how they executed people so everybody could see um, what was going on. They also invented crucifixion. Um, so the Persians were really good at making people die miserable deaths. Um, and, uh, and so, but what's going on here with Mordecai? Um, he hears this. There, there's actually, uh, there's actually references to this kind of thing in the Persian, um, in the Persian regime. Um, the, the Greeks, uh, who are talking about the Persians. I know you guys are really excited about this, but, uh, the Persian writer Xenophon, who wrote the Chiripeda. 
Xenophon, anyway, Xenophon says that what they would do, what the Persian kings would do, they had their eyes and their ears, the king's eyes and ears. And they were the intelligence gathering network. They were the spies. And they were rewarded for reporting things that were a threat to the king. And this is a very real concern. Uh, Xerxes eventually will actually be assassinated, along with two of his sons. Um, There were always these plots against the king. And so Mordecai is part of this. He's part of the king's eye, um, which which sounds like an awesome action movie or a comic book. Um, But uh, he's involved in this this intelligence gathering. He hears this conspiracy. We don't know why these people are mad at him, um, but they're mad at Ahasuerus. He reports them, and they are... Um, and they're, they're impaled. So here's Mordecai, a Jew, protecting the king. All right? He's protecting the king. So keep that in mind. Um, he's loyal to the king. In chapter 3 and verse 1, after these things, King, king Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. We all know what that means. Not even the ancients knew what this means. In fact, the Greeks were so frustrated, the Greeks who translated Esther into Greek, they were so frustrated with this word, they just completely changed it to bouleon, which doesn't sound anything like agagite. Um, uh, and they just they basically say he's just a stranger. All right? But the son of Hamadatta, uh, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Uh, when And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he, was, he had told them that he was a Jew. Now, we don't have any explanation for why Mordecai doesn't bow to Haman. Um, in fact, I mentioned the guys that translated Esther into Greek. They were so frustrated by this that they add a phrase. They say because Mordecai, uh, Mordecai didn't bow because he wanted to remain in obedience to the law of his God. But that's not actually in here. It's not in here. Now, I have a sneaky suspicion, um, and I can't prove this, but this is the way it kind of sounds to me. It's, I have a sneaky suspicion that Mordecai thinks, believes, but can't prove that Haman was involved in the plot that Mordecai had spoiled. And so he's not going to show any respect to somebody who is so sneaky and so dangerous that he can come out of a situation where two of his buddies get caught and impaled and wind up getting promoted. Haman is a, a dangerous person. I can't prove that, but it kind of kind of sits there. And, and so Mordecai refuses to bow. Um, he refuses to bend the knee. When you read, um, he, re- he refused to bow down. That means to go to one knee or to pay homage, to, to bend your body um, to Haman. In verse 5, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He, it, it literally said, the, the, the Hebrew is, um, he, he did not want to be seen laying hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Um, Slight overreaction? 
I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, so, you know, uh, you're walking down the street and somebody with a Massachusetts license plate or, or you're driving down the road and somebody with a Massachusetts license plate cuts you off without turning their blinker on, not that they would ever do that. Um, and so you decide to eradicate all registered Massachusetts licensed, driver, uh, licensed drivers um, to fix the problem. And it'll be okay, because if you did that, the people in New Hampshire just do it anyway. Um, they just cut you off anyway. Um, but he decides the, the solution to this is I'll just kill all the Jews. That way, uh, now it seems to be that what he thinks he's going to do is that they're not actually going to carry out this law, but it'll give him a way to get rid of Mordecai. So he can make sure he kills Mordecai, and then he can, you know, position himself, no, no, mercy, mercy on the rest of the Jews, let them stay alive. So in the first month, which is the month, this is verse 7, the month of Nisan, all right, this is the first month of the Hebrew calendar. It's in, um, it, we're, we're actually, uh, we might be at the tail end of Nisan right now. Um, I didn't take the time to look. But in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, they threw dice, okay? Before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month until the 12th month. This is how you, this is basically how you make a decision. You cast dice and it, and it, it you eliminate decisions. It's like playing Dungeons and Dragons, but with other people's lives. Um, and he cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, the last month. And Haman said to King Ahasuerus, so, so his, he's basically saying, okay, let's pick what month we're going to kill all the Jews. So, you have to understand what's going on with Haman. Haman is not just angry. He is now premeditating massive, a massive act of genocide. And he's trying to plan out the best time to commit his massive act of genocide. Okay? So he says, all right, let's do it at the end of the year. That's when my schedule's clear. That's when the dice say we should do it. And Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad, dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. And their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws. All right, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate him. If you were here in week one, you remember, the laws of the king, their purpose is to preserve balance. The, the, the Persian word is data. All right, and it's this idea of maintaining balance, keeping everything in balance. All right. It is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver. I won't get into it, but that's a lot of money. Into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasury. I will pay, this is what he's saying, I will pay the fee to slaughter these people. Um, I will pay the salaries of the hatchet man. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. What's missing from what Haman says to the king? There's a tiny detail. Something he leaves unsaid. Who the people are. He doesn't say the people are the Jews. He just says, hey, there's a seditious group of people running around your empire. I'll give 10,000 talents of silver so we can get rid of them. 
And Xerxes says, oh, that sounds good. I hate seditious people. I just had this plot, had to impale a couple of guys. It was gross. You remember, you got promoted because of it, right? Um, yeah, go ahead and do that. You go ahead and do that. That sounds like a good idea. Here's my signet ring. He takes his ring. His ring would have had like a, a seal that you would press into things um, with, with uh, the authorization of the king. Uh, the king said, the money is given to you. He says, verse 11, the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. <laughs> so Haman has managed to, to work it out so that he just paid himself his own money to get rid of the people he doesn't like. All right. So, so he is, he told the king, Hey, I'll, I'll put 10,000 silver talents in here to wipe out the Jews. And the king goes, that sounds a good, like a good idea. Why don't you take those 10,000 talents and, and get rid of those Jews? I don't want to be bothered with it. You go ahead and handle it. Verse 12, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors uh, over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. Okay, so real quick, all you Bible scholars, those of you that actually you, you know a little bit about the Jewish calendar, um, why wouldn't the Jews have been aware of what was happening here? This is a deep one. I'll give extra points to the person that guesses this. That's right. This is in the middle of Passover. Passover is 8 Nisan. It begins 8 Nisan and it runs for a week. This is the 13th of Nisan. The Jews are all celebrating Passover. They're not in the court because they're at their holy day. They're removed from the situation. They don't know what's happening. They only find out afterwards. Haman is sneaky. He's sneaky. Uh, he, to every province, the end of verse 12, it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed with the king's signet rings. Letters or scrolls were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. That seems like overkill. I mean, the three, let's make sure we understand what we're doing. Young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Shusha, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shusha was thrown into confusion. Why is it thrown into confusion? Well, historically, um, the Jews have become a very important part of the Persian administration. They're a significant component of what keeps this society running. That's why we have the story of Mordecai preserving the king, saving the king from that plot. It's a, it's a demonstration of how faithful the Jews were to a good king. They're, they're willing to, to operate his kingdom and maintain things. And historically, this has been true. Right? We, we have records um, going back to the 6th century B.C. to 100 years before this when the Babylonians were ruling of Jews who uh, very, very quickly, once they were in the society, they became a part of the society. They tried to make the society better. They were doing their best to improve the situation for, those, for themselves and for those around them. The peace, preserving the peace, played to their favor. 
They didn't want to be uh, troublemakers. They didn't want to be instigators. They wanted to be loyal. They believed that their God, all right, according to the book of 2 Kings, their God had put them in exile as punishment for their idolatry, for their disobedience. And so they were going to be faithful in their exile because their God had positioned them there. They accepted that role. Um, and even though uh, Cyrus, who is um, basically Xerxes' um, kind of great-grand-uncle, Cyrus the king, the first Persian king, had decreed that they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem, only a small number of them had gone back. The vast majority of the Jews um, in the empire, they stayed there, and they were part of the bureaucracy. They were running things. But there at Passover feast, when this decision is made, so the decision gets made. The king looks around at all of his advisors to see if anybody has an issue with it. But any of the advisors that would have an issue with it would have been Jewish. And so they wouldn't have been there. He goes, this is great. Haman, come on over. Let's have a drink. And when the decree goes out, there is massive confusion and fear. And this is, this is a, a, a terrifying setup. Now, we're, gonna, we're not going to get to the actual resolution of the situation today. You'll have to read ahead. Go ahead. You can do it. Um, I give you permission. Uh, I, always, I always thought it was weird. A preacher would be like, a preacher would finish a sermon when I was a kid. He'd be like, and we'll cover that next week. And I'm like, well, I can just keep reading. It's not like my copy's blanked out or anything. <laughs> so, so, but we get to this, we get to this moment, right? And we get to this, this, this. What I'll give you a new vocabulary word if you don't know it. The nadir. Um, nadir is the lowest possible point. Zenith is a high point. Nadir is the opposite. It's a low point. The nadir of the Jewish life in Persia. They're terrified. Now, there's a reason that they're terrified of this. The two previous kings, Cyrus and Darius, the preceding kings of Xerxes, um, they had been very, very tolerant of Jewish beliefs. They, they allowed the Jews to rebuild their temple. They allowed them to rebuild their city. They, they were very tolerant of, of the Jews. In fact, they were tolerant of all religions. They were very open to the idea of, you should have your religion. We're not going to fight with you. We're not going to argue with you. We have our religion. You have your religion. As long as we get along, we're fine. Uh, Xerxes is not like that. In fact, we have inscriptions from Xerxes where he condemns other religions um, because they are the actions of the Daria, the, the demons, the demonic forces, the dark forces. He, he orders temples to other gods destroyed. Xerxes um, takes these things as political threats. And that's why when Haman says this to him, he's like, yeah, get rid of those people. Now, he doesn't keep in mind Xerxes does not know Haman's talking about the Jews. He just... There's the seditious people. We're going to deal with them. Now, it's always a challenge to come up with a big idea from a passage of scripture like this. But you all know I, I like a big idea. Here's the big idea. No matter how good things are going, even if things are going so well that your niece just became queen of Persia, your fortunes can turn on a dime. There is nothing that says that we are guaranteed a privileged position in our lives, even if we do everything right. No matter how good things are going, no matter 
how well we have planned and appropriated and dealt with, we should all have enough experience in our lives to know that your fortunes can change on a dime. The strangest things happen to people. How many of you have ever reached a point? You ever get nervous? This happens to me. You ever get nervous when all the bills are paid and you still have money in the bank? I get nervous when I start getting ahead, right? I start looking, I'm like, well, I paid everything. I, I, did I miss anything? I go back over the list. I paid everything. All the checks are written. Things are cash. There's money in the bank. Everything's going. It's like, I'm like, and then I just sit and wait for the chimney to fall off or um, my car to implode or, or you know, I, I don't know. I mean, a lawsuit to come down the pike or jury duty or, I mean, I, I, something's, something's going to happen. And we just, we kind of sit there, it's like, you know, it, it, there, there's, there's people that they just kind of live, you know, those blessed lives. They never have a problem. And, and man, if any of us ever meet one of those people, that'd be great. Because I've never met one that's been, we didn't have problems. We just, we just, there, this happens in our lives, right? But so, so often when we get involved in faith, we get involved in church, we get involved in, in a journey, we say, okay, well, as long as I, if I just get all the ducks in a row and I get everything lined up, things should work out for me. But our perspective is so often short term. It's so often about the benefit that it, it acquires that I get for myself in this moment. I want things to go right for me in this moment. Mordecai literally is doing everything right. He, he has raised a, a, a beautiful, intelligent young woman who is queen of Persia now. Um, and he, he took responsibility for raising this young woman because her parents are gone. They're out of the picture, probably died. And so he's done a great job raising Esther. Um, he, he's, he, he chaperoned her and guided her and, and she's become queen. He, he's serving in the government and he's doing a good job. He's, he's reporting corruption. He's keeping things under control. He's, he's doing what's supposed to be done. He's living his life out in the open, righteous and holy. And even when he's being challenged as to why he doesn't do something, he doesn't lay any blame on, on Haman or anything like that. He simply, he simply says, I'm not going to bow to him. We don't even, we don't even have the, the, the clues as to what's going on. He's not, and, and, and Mordecai is just being very honest. He's being very transparent. He's being very authentic. We could use a bunch of catchwords there. And yet, the entire fortune of the, the Jewish people turns on one embittered, corrupt politician's decision and his manipulation of the situation to get control. There are no guarantees for the faithful in this life. You say, that's so pessimistic. No, it's honest. It's realistic. It's true. I'm not going to sell you a bill of sale that to be a, a Christian is to be always on top of the stack that's not what happens if you look at the history of the of christians you actually find we wind up on the bottom of the stack quite a bit sometimes from other people that claim to be christians see middle ages but we are not living our lives for the fortunes of this world. 
A Christian is not devoted to what we achieve and accomplish and succeed at here. It's so easy to live your life thinking, when I get my face on a t-shirt, a website with my name, and other people following my social media posts, I will have accomplished something great. Um, or when I, when I finish accumulating a quarter million dollars of school debt, right, I will be successful. The logic of that one is terrifying. People wonder why my daughter, my daughter and my wife and I are trying to get her through school with no debt. It's just a matter of simple math. I ain't a smart man, but I know that one minus six is not a real number. So you can make $100 an hour, but if you got $250,000 in debt accumulating interest daily, um, you're never going to get out of that. Believe it or not, I have friends my age who are still paying off their school loans. Now, they went to medical school, so... It's different. And just about the time, where's Doc? Just about the time they get their loans paid off, their malpractice insurance is going to go up anyway. So it doesn't matter. They're never getting ahead, right? This is the way it goes. So, but we, we live our lives, right? We, we, we live our lives. We can't live our lives for success here in this moment. You say, but, but shouldn't, I, shouldn't, I, shouldn't I want to be successful? Shouldn't I want to make money? Shouldn't I succeed? If, if, if I make money, I mean, doesn't that make it better for everybody else? Yeah, but it doesn't make it any different better if you don't make money. Because we're... I, didn't Jesus say something about don't lay up treasures here where moth and rust corrupts? I think he said that. Pretty sure. Because this world's fortunes turn... On a dime. And when they change, if your faith isn't rooted deep, you will get uprooted. When your fortunes turn, and we don't wish this on anybody, but it happens. When your fortunes turn, if the first place you turn is, well, Either I wasn't faithful enough or God wasn't real enough. or Then what was your faith really in? We're going to find that Mordecai, when Mordecai responds to this, now at first his response is iffy, but ultimately he determines, I know what needs to be done here. I know what we need to take a chance on. We need to take a risk to answer this challenge. But just do me a favor as a Christian. If you're a follower of Christ this morning, accept the reality that the world is not in your control and it can get real dark real fast. I'm not saying don't fight it. I'm not saying don't resist when that happens. I'm not saying just roll over and let let Caesar take everything. But I am saying you need to deal with that reality. American Christianity is spoiled by 200 years of being the established religion of America. You say, whoa, no, no, America, first, you know, first amendment, there's separation of church and state. Yeah, no. Christian ethos was the religion of America for 200 years. All you have to do is read the inaugural speeches of presidents. 
They make sure that they cite Christian religion in their inaugural speeches. Why? Because America was a nation where the vast majority of people gave at least verbal consent to the Christian creed. And now as the world is changing, as Christianity is becoming quickly a minority, everybody's freaking out. I'm just going to tell you, the world is dark, man. The spirit of Antichrist, the Apostle Paul says, it is already at work. It always has been. We as Christians cannot base our faith on our circumstances and our fortunes in the moment because they can change. They can change very quickly. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, as we are gathered and we are worshiping together, we cannot help but celebrate the blessings that we have. To live in a nation where we are still free to gather, where we're not yet being dragged off to prison for belief. But that's not a guarantee that it's the way that it's always going to be. Help us to find our security, our faith, our endurance, our truth, not in our circumstances, but in you. Help us to walk in your light rather than in the glow of our current situation. And when the challenges come, help our faith to be deep and rooted in who you are, what you have done, and not in the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a minute, we're going to be baptizing. So I'm clearing some stuff out of the way, making sure I take electronics off of myself. Also taking my shoes off, so I apologize for that, but you don't want to take leather shoes into a baptistry. (laughs) Done it. It's not a good idea. not my feet it's the shoes (laughs) but uh we we have opportunity to have uh two baptisms today um we're gonna and we're gonna welcome uh them here uh from two different two different roads so i'm gonna turn this off for a second get in the tank